joy to come and sing of his praise and now to look at his word. I want to encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 30. Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. or swipe there, whatever means you use, just find yourself there. All right, Luke chapter four, I'm gonna read beginning in verse 14. These are words inspired by the Holy Spirit. Luke writes, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed." to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up, three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for giving us a glimpse into the early ministry of Jesus. To see his preaching, to see his serving, to see his focus. Father, would you help us see the truth of your word this morning that it might change us. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, has someone you've known for a long time ever shocked you? Maybe a friend, perhaps a family member that you've known for a good while that's now doing something you never imagined possible. There are still people who think it's laughable that I'm a pastor today, including myself. But this is often the case, isn't it? We don't know people as well as we often think we do. Sometimes we find people doing sometimes amazing things, significant things when we thought, how is this possible? How could 
How could it be that this is the one, this person is doing this very thing? Well, I'm sure that was the case for many in Nazareth as they had long known Jesus. Thanks, brother. True servant, thank you. Here's this hometown kid, Joseph's boy, that has now returned home making some outrageous claims for himself. And yet it would be these very claims that would become the hope of the world. See, it's in this morning's text that we see Jesus has certainly officially begun his earthly ministry. We know that he spends the bulk of his time in the northern part of this area, of the promised land area of Israel. He's typically in the north doing ministry in the area of Galilee. He's already been ministering. We know from the other gospel writers, he's already been doing ministry. This is not his first go, but it's early in his ministry. He's already performed the great miracle at the wedding at Cana by turning water into wine. And now he's back in Nazareth, his hometown. And things are about to get quite interesting. You see, Jesus in his arrival and his earthly ministry is now ushering in this new era of God's redemptive purposes. And as Jesus launches his ministry, we see several characteristics that, about his ministry. These are not exhaustive characteristics, but from this text, we see at least three characteristics about his ministry that we would do, do well to give attention to this morning. Now, I want us to walk through this text observing the ministry of Jesus and what it has to teach us. The very first thing that we see about the ministry of Jesus is that it was a ministry of preaching. It was a ministry of preaching. If you look at verses 14 and 15, this is a great summary statement of the ministry of Jesus, really in total. He was going in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. It's a great summary statement. He's, he's on a teaching ministry. He's doing a teaching ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit. Again, predominantly focused in Galilee at this time. And that shouldn't be too surprising. Again, this is the area from which he was from. He conducts his ministry, we're told, again, in the power of the Spirit. Recalling his baptism when the Spirit descended upon him. Recalling the temptation when the Spirit led him, drove him to the wilderness to be tempted. And now the same Spirit empowering him to do this ministry. As Jesus ministers throughout Galilee, we know that he does amazing works. We'll see next week uh, many miracles that he performs. And yet it's his teaching ministry, not the only part of his ministry, but it's certainly the central part of his ministry that Luke seems to zero in on here. We know that Jesus taught the word regularly in the synagogues, as we're told, as he made his way throughout the surrounding countryside, teaching in their synagogues, we're told, being glorified by all. He was a regular teacher in these local synagogues. And as Jesus returns now to Nazareth, his hometown, we're told that he goes to the synagogue. Notice what the text says. It says, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. A little side note there. Obviously, this is synagogue on the Sabbath. Not exactly equivalent to church on Sunday, but it's 
kind of church of that day and time. And notice it says, as was his custom. This was a normal thing for Jesus to do. The Son of God, the Messiah, the creator of the universe, going to church every week. This was part of his regular routine, as was his custom. Regularly gathering with the people of God, regularly studying and teaching the word of God as part of a normal routine. He prioritized both the weekly gathering and the public ministry of the word. And his own ministry included exhortation, encouragement, and instruction. If you notice the language that he quotes as he unrolls the, the, the scroll to the prophet Isaiah, We'll come back to this in a moment, but I just want to see it, let you see it here. Notice as he reads from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, notice the language that the prophet uses that Jesus is now quoting or reading. He's, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Three of those verbs are verbs of proclamation, verbs of teaching and preaching. Again, we know that Jesus did many other social acts of benevolence as he did minister to those who were socially and physically impoverished. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cast out demons. But Jesus, we're told, if you jump ahead to chapter, or excuse me, same chapter, verse 43, he says to him, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. Notice what he says, for I was sent for this purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to be the savior of sinners, yes, but he came to perform an earthly ministry of teaching and preaching. That's what he says. That's why he says he was sent. Because this is the gift that God has given his people. Jesus models here for us through his ministry of preaching the centrality that the word of God ought to have among the people of God. The centrality of teaching, the centrality of preaching, the means by which God's primary way of getting his word out to his people and to those who are not his people is through the proclamation of God's word. It's a gift of God. Notice Jesus, even as he's pointing to prophecies of old and now calling their fulfillment in the presence, he's acknowledging their gift to us. And friends, the calling of the church today is yet but an extension of this very ministry that Jesus performed. We know that Jesus comes at the beginning of his ministry proclaiming the gospel, preaching the truth. He says, for this purpose I was sent that I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. At the end of his ministry, we read in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, the Great Commission, what does Jesus say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. One of the very things that are central to the Great Commission, we know that from the Great Commission that the imperative is that we're called to make disciples. We're to be disciple makers by going, baptizing, and teaching Again, teaching being a primary, central part of the ministry of God's people. Jesus came preaching, and he leaves his disciples with the very same task. This is, again, why teaching and preaching must be a driving priority for us as followers of Jesus. The centrality of the word of God, 
among the people of God is something that we ought to prioritize at all costs, not just this morning. Certainly we have a time of instruction and teaching this morning, but throughout the course of our lives that we're sitting regularly under the taught word, the preached word, that we're learning, that we're hearing from God's word, that that takes precedent in our lives. We see it modeled well in Jesus' ministry. It's a ministry of preaching. But notice number two, that it was a ministry of fulfillment. We see that in verses 17 through 22. Jesus was given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 61 and 2. Now, we don't know exactly how these early synagogue services would go. Uh, There's some guesses and there's some little hints throughout history, uh, but there would typically be reading from the prophets and the Psalms, and then people would get up and kind of give an exhortation and kind of uh, a lesson, if you will, from those particular passages that were read in the synagogue. And this seems to be what's going on here. Jesus comes in and he's handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He reads it, particularly at 61 verses 1 and 2, and also a verse from Isaiah 58 verse 6 mixed in. He reads it and then he sits down. This is what rabbis would typically do. They would stand and read the text and then they would sit down to instruct, right? A lot of people make fun of pastors on stools today. Well, this is what the rabbis did, right? I don't use one, but you know, I mean, this is just part of the normal teaching. And notice what happens. We're told that as Jesus begins to explain this text, all eyes were fixed on him. And Jesus says, today, The scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Friends, this perhaps is the greatest mic drop ever, right? I mean, can you imagine this? Jesus comes in, he reads the scripture and says, it's done. It's fulfilled today as you've heard it read. So what is Isaiah 61 about? If you go back and read the prophecy and you put it in its context, ultimately it's a prophecy about an anointed individual who would come and eventually bring God's deliverance, God's salvation. In fact, the entire chapter not only promises an anointed deliverer, but also promises material benefits among the believing community as well. And the fact that Jesus reads this exact text and claims it is fulfilled in their hearing would have been like a lightning bolt slamming down into the synagogue that day. I mean, can you imagine all these years, these Jewish people anticipating the Messiah, all these years looking forward to God's promises being fulfilled, and then one of your very own hometown kids, now an adult, comes in and says, I'm your guy. I mean, can you imagine that? Would you have taken him seriously at this moment? I mean, pretend you don't have the Bible. You have the Old Testament, you, you have kind of prophecies, and, and someone you know as a kid, running the streets, maybe with your children, maybe had ice cream at your house, comes into the synagogue, comes into church that morning and reads the text and says, this is actually about me. Jesus acknowledges right here in his hometown synagogue that he is indeed the one to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. Now I want you to notice several important things that come out of this statement of fulfillment. What is Jesus doing as he's teaching? 
One of the things that he does as he reads Isaiah's prophecy and claims fulfillment in himself, one of the things that he does is, that's helpful, that's instructive to us, is that he first acknowledges the human condition. The original recipients of this would have been Jews living in exile, Babylonian captivity, people who were both physically and spiritually oppressed. Indeed, that was Israel's story all throughout the pages of the Old Testament. They simply couldn't keep it together long enough. They were often living in dark, difficult days, largely due to their own disobedience. And while there are promises of a great deliverer throughout, so, throughout the Old Testament so far, no one has emerged that has been the great deliverer, the, the anointed one. There's not been one. There, there's been glimpses of, could this be the one? Nope. Could this be? Nope. On and on we go throughout the Old Testament. No one has emerged as the great Messiah. But that all changes with Jesus' arrival and his announcement. Jesus reads the spirit, he reads from Isaiah 61 verse 1, the spirit of the Lord is up on me and because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So we see here that it's the poor who are the target for this particular ministry. In fact, Isaiah lists several types of people here, poor, captives, blind, oppressed. So who exactly are these people? Well, there have been several different interpretations brought from this passage, views that have been established. Some interpret these verses socially or politically, economically. Therefore, the poor, the oppressed, are those living in poverty or in some unjust circumstance. So Jesus then becomes this great social, political revolutionary whose sole purpose is to liberate poor and oppressed people. So therefore his salvation is strictly in terms of social or political need. This is where we get liberation theology. Jesus becomes this great liberator of those who are bogged down in Others see this text as a reference to the poor and oppressed, more being spiritually descriptive terms, morally bankrupt, spiritually impoverished. We know that the Bible uses these kinds of terms to describe spiritual realities. We know that the Bible uses the term poor in both ways, materially and spiritually. But when you consider the Old Testament and how the New Testament people in Jesus' day would have understood this, Physical poverty, though in view, would have not been entirely what was intended here. I mean, the poor, Spirit of the Lord has anointed me because he's, or excuse me, is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The poor certainly would have included the material, materially poor, but it ultimately pointed to those who were, in fact, impoverished by sin. Seems as Isaiah is using social terms to illustrate or describe the spiritual status of all people before God. Now it's fair to say that it's often the case that those who are the materially poor, those who are social outcasts, those who are truly oppressed, the downtrodden, were and are often the most receptive recipients to the good news. 
What else do they have to cling to? And so they are often in the most desperate of circumstances to hear what God has to say about who he is and about our ultimate need. They were often fertile soil for the gospel. The poor are more apt to see their need for help than are the rich. But we're told here that the Lord's anointed would come to bring hope for those who were in spiritual bondage. Thus the poor, the oppressed, the blind. These are terms that are descriptive terms for every person. We all can be counted among such folk. This is describing the the sad state of spiritual reality that exists ever since the fall. Friends, that doesn't mean that we should never be concerned with social issues or social injustices. In fact, we should not be at all surprised that oppression exists in various forms because sinful people do pass sinful laws. Sinful people do build sinful institutions. Sinful people come up with sinful social practices. Systemic injustices exist because sinners are part of the systems. And while we do have, I think, responsibility to address social concerns, I think the point that Jesus is making here is not primarily social, it is primarily spiritual. We ought to care deeply about social matters and act when we can and when we have opportunities. Many of us are in places of privilege where we have voices that can speak into those situations. But listen, Jesus did not come ultimately to be a liberator of systems. He came to be a liberator for sinners. And it's the sinner that contributes to the broken systems. Therefore, as sinners are liberated by the power of the gospel, they should, in fact, live in ways that promotes grace and justice in the world. But we can't flip-flop those priorities. The priority is the proclamation of the gospel to those who are in spiritual bondage. That is where our hope ultimately rests. If Jesus came to ultimately fix systems, then the Roman Empire would have been overthrown immediately. But they weren't. Jesus came to rescue the spiritually impoverished. Friend, you may find yourself here today and you come into this gathering of Christians to worship and maybe you find yourself today not as someone who would describe yourself as among the poor. But yet the Bible tells us that if we're not a follower of Jesus Christ, that is indeed our status. We're spiritually impoverished. We're under the oppression of sin and the evil one. We're outside of the kingdom of God and that our only hope is in Jesus Christ. He came for the poor. He came for those who are broken and impoverished. And that certainly doesn't include our social and material realities, but it's ultimately a spiritual brokenness that Jesus came to rescue and redeem. Friend, if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Christ, understand that he comes as a savior for people just like you. He comes to 
acknowledged the human condition. But as he acknowledges the human condition, he is also the answer to the problem. Which leads me to the second point under this is that he brings the gift of grace. He brings the gift of grace. The, the anointed one in Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to what? Proclaim what? Good news. Good news to the poor. Nature of this message that this anointed one would bring is described as good news. Later in verse 19, we also see that he comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then we see the initial response of the hearers in the synagogue that day in verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at what? His gracious words. Gracious words, grace-filled words, words that embodied this idea of grace. Those who are poor and blind and oppressed are those who are entirely unable to do anything about their situation. They need help from the outside and that's exactly what Christ comes to give. Your greatest hope and your greatest sense of help does not rest inside of you, friends. It's outside of you. It is, it is, is outside of you and it rests as a gift of grace from God through the provision that Christ comes to give. See, the ministry of Jesus would bring hope to the world. The poor would indeed find riches. The blind would in fact see. The prisoner, though maybe still in prison, would be set free. The oppressed would find freedom. And all of this would in fact be the fruit of the gospel of grace. He brings the gift of grace. But another thing that we find amidst this fulfillment is that he confronts unbelief. Look at verse 22 through 24. We know that the initial reaction, and all spoke well of him and marveled. Actually, that spoke well could actually be translated. They just, it wasn't a positive or a negative. It was kind of a, it could be an affirmation positively, but some actually think that they weren't happy even there based upon the translation. But regardless, even if they were initially pleased, marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, so they were at least amazed. And then they said, is not this Joseph's son? Nazareth would have been a town of about 500 people-ish. So everyone would have known everyone. Is not this Joseph's son? He lives just right down the corner, isn't that, isn't that his son? And his response to them begins really to change the scene a bit. In verse 23, he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. You see, Jesus, there's, a, there's this glimpse of omniscience here. He knows what they're thinking. Without them even saying a word just yet, although they've already spoken, said, isn't this Joseph? The, the doubt begins to come out of their mouth. Jesus knows the reality of their hearts. He knows that they're thinking a lot more than is this Joseph's son. They're, they're in full-blown doubts. And he knew that, that soon some would be demanding signs to prove himself. That they've heard of these things that Jesus has done in other places in the surrounding countryside. They've heard the miracles, they've heard the things that, that have been going on and 
Now they want, they, it's, he knows that they're going to be demanding signs. They quote this proverb, it's a well-known proverb of the day, physician, heal yourself, as if that he could just be this show, this, this someone that could just prove himself through, through signs and wonders. I mean, think about that. I mean, if you're in their, their shoes, I mean, it's, it's understandable, right? At least if you, if you try to be fair to the people of Nazareth, understandable to some degree why they would be thinking that. I mean, here, Jesus now, as an adult some years later, returns to his hometown and has the audacity to show up at the local synagogue, read a well-known text, and basically say, that's talking about me. He knows their doubt, and he begins to expose it. There's more than just doubt that's here, though. And he says in verse 24, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. They were not just going to doubt him. They were going to outright reject him. You see, the people may have marveled at the sermon that day that they heard from Jesus, but they were not seeing the Savior. He's confronting their unbelief. They think Jesus is perhaps a good teacher. They're pleased. Hey, one of our own. Sounds good. They marveled. But they don't truly see him for who he is. Jesus says, this is fulfilled in your hearing, and yet they don't hear it. It's interesting, isn't it, that he talks about recovering sight to the blind, and yet they remain blind. It doesn't resonate that he's the one that Isaiah was pointing to. Friends, I think this is a helpful warning, reminder, caution to us that sometimes the truth is often hidden in plain sight. Sometimes that which is so familiar to us is most unseen by us. That's why, I don't know if the statistics ring true, but many will often say most car accidents happen very close to home. Think about that, it makes sense, doesn't it? We grow so used to driving the same streets and roads on a daily basis that we're not looking for the unexpected. We could illustrate it this way, thinking about vaccines. I'm not here to be pro or anti. But this is what they do with the vaccine. They, they actually put the real thing into you, right? It's kind of crazy how this works. Like, you don't want the flu? Let me give you the flu in a small dose. Um, I still have some questions about that routine, but maybe some of you medically minded people can help me out. But that's what they do. They actually put the real thing into you in measured doses so you become inoculated to the real thing when you are confronted with it in its full-blown form. Just enough of the flu in a measured dose so that when you confront the real thing, the flu doesn't bother you. That's the idea, right? We know that not always works. Friend, I think that's the danger with Jesus. We get just enough of Jesus in measured doses to be inoculated against things. Familiarity keeps a lot of people from recognizing Jesus for he, who he truly is. Some have heard just enough of Bible to get that Jesus is important. They've come to church enough to be familiar with him, but they don't truly know him. So familiar to them that ultimately they dismiss him. And I would just say a word to you, those of you who may be here today and, and may be skeptical about Jesus. 
Maybe you've not embraced the word of God. Maybe, maybe you don't see Jesus as the true Savior. And you're here just to try to maybe learn more. I would just counsel you, be sure that if you're rejecting Jesus, that you're not rejecting a Jesus because he's familiar. Because the reality is that the actual truth about him could be very well hidden in plain sight. See, the irony is that Jesus talks about the one who came to recover, like I said earlier, the sight of the blind, and yet the very ones who knew him most remain blind. I think this is a great warning to all of us. Do not be familiar enough with Jesus to know about him and yet not truly know him. I think that could be a warning to church people. All of us in this room today could be so familiar with Jesus that we've not truly seen him as the son of God, God who became flesh, lived a perfect life, perfect righteousness, and yet died on the sinner's cross as a substitute for our sin to take upon himself the full wrath of God against our sin, bearing judgment, bearing the curse upon his own shoulders in our place. And he died to be raised three days later from the grave, triumphant over death, hell, and the grave once and for all, and later ascends to the right hand of the Father. And he did all of these things to be your hope. So many people just see him as a great prophet, a great teacher. They're impressed by him. They marvel at him, but yet they don't know him. Just let that be a warning to us. Even us believers who regularly gather to study and worship Christ, don't take that too lightly or too casually. Jesus comes to fulfill. Lastly, it's a ministry for all. It's a ministry of preaching. It's a ministry of fulfillment. It's a ministry for all. Look at verses 23 through 29. This is where Jesus really gets these folks wound up. All right, you still with me? All right. Last point. Notice something here in verse 22. The crowd marvels at his gracious words. But by the time we get to verse 28, they've gone from marveling to being filled with wrath. What happened? I mean, how do you get from verse 22 to verse 28 in such radical, I mean, they're ready to throw him off a cliff and kill him. Well, there's something in between we should look. And so Jesus, what he begins to do is after he says, um, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He, he understands their doubt. He understands their rejection. He understands what's going on in their heart of hearts. And then he quotes, or he, he proceeds to give two historical, biblical accounts to make a further point. In verses 25 and 26, he refers back to this story of Elijah. I believe this is in 1 Kings chapter 17. Again, side note, notice the priority that Jesus gives to the word of God. He is actually seeing God's word as authoritative as he refers to the Old Testament scriptures to make a point. Side note. Anyway, 1 Kings chapter 17, we find the story of Elijah. And this is a dark time in Israel. This is not a good day. They were experiencing a severe famine and King Ahab ruled the day. He persecuted the prophets and he was seeking to do harm to Elijah. All these things were going on. There's a bad famine. And he says, notice what Jesus said, I tell you the truth, there were many widows in Israel 
in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, three and a half years of famine. A great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to, the, to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Hear what Jesus is saying. Here Jesus is in Nazareth, synagogue, his people, Jewish people, and he's basically saying to them, listen, you remember that time in Elijah's day when it was so bad and the famine was three and a half years, great famine? There was a lot of Israelite widows that were starving to death, and Elijah doesn't go to any of them. He goes to this one Gentile widow. She receives him. You see, the irony of that story Jesus is getting at is that while Elijah was being rejected by a Jewish king, he is actually welcomed by a Gentile widow. Then he goes on to verse 27 and refers to the story of Elisha. We find this story in 2 Kings chapter 5. The story of Naaman's healing. Naaman was a commander of the Syrian army. And he also had contracted leprosy. He's a leper. And Jesus says, while there were many lepers in Israel, Elisha was called to heal Naaman, a Syrian general. So now, again, similar point. There were a lot of lepers in Israel. But who is it that Elisha was called to heal? A Gentile commander, Syrian. You see what Jesus is saying? He tells them two stories that basically fly in the face of the ethnocentric tendency of the Jews. He's saying that God, in some of Israel's darkest days, passed over Israel in order to show grace to Gentiles. Israel had rejected the prophets. Certain Gentiles received them. And notice, by the way, it wasn't just a Jew-Gentile thing. Notice the spectrum of the social order. You have a poor Gentile widow and a great Syrian commander. The spectrum is wide, isn't it? The social strata is, 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 is significant here. And I think the point Jesus is making that, that listen, this prideful Israel first mentality has got to go. The gospel is good for all. He's showing them that the kingdom of God is ethnically different than what they actually thought. And they grow furious. One of the things, friends, that we learn from what Jesus is saying here, notice in verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. That's what, that's what ticked them off. It's when Jesus says, not only have you rejected me, and there's no prophet that's welcome in his hometown. Not only have you rejected me, let me just tell you something. This is just a pattern of what we've seen in the Old Testament. God's people rejecting God's prophets. And here Jesus comes as another prophet, the prophet, rejected by his own. And he says, that's okay. You reject just as the Old Testament Israelites rejected, but grace is going to flow to Gentiles. Friends, grace has no restrictions. God is obliged to save no one, yet he is free to save everyone. It's what you see here, the freedom of God's grace. 
And this will often cultivate two very different responses. It will either make you angry like Jonah when God gave his uh, Ninevites repentance or like the people of Nazareth. It will either make you angry or it will lead you to worship. Friends, human nature does not like the freedom of God to do as he chooses. And yet his freedom is your only hope. And let me press this in just a little bit more directly as we consider what Jesus is illustrating. I just ask you, are you Christians, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, are you prepared to see God's grace flow to those you might find completely different and even appalling to you. Jews and Gentiles, Jews hated Gentiles. We have all kinds of different folks in this room. So the differences that we might have will vary. Maybe it's your obnoxious coworker that ridicules everything that you believe. Are you prepared to see grace go to people like that? Are you prepared to see grace go to those who are in favor of impeachment? Are you prepared to see grace goes to those who are not in favor of it? Those different from you might be more progressively minded, and yet they may be more conservatively minded. Are you, wherever you are on that spectrum, prepared to see the gospel of grace go to people that are not like you? Could be a difference in lifestyle, urban and rural. Maybe it's racial. White, black, Asian, Hispanic. Pastor Jamal Williams, I appreciate what he says. He says, one of the greatest apologetics in the next 20 years will be multi-ethnic churches. As cultural divides continue and likely deepen, I believe people will ask why, thinking about the church. When they look at our churches and see blacks and whites, Hispanics and Asians, young and old, women and men, rich and poor, standing, living, laughing, weeping, walking together. Friend, I think that is a great application that can be taken right out of this passage, understanding that the gospel is good for all. The ministry of Jesus was a ministry for all types of people. And I just encourage you to think about those you feel furthest removed from. And don't be pious and think, well, I like everybody. We're all, to some degree, very stuck on ourselves. Think about those you feel furthest removed from and have no identity with. What if God chose to save them? Would that enrage you? Or would that delight you? You see, we are all recipients of God's grace. None of us deserve it. And we have every reason not to grow resentful, but to truly rejoice. Quite the start to an earthly ministry, huh? It's not the way most would want to start, being teaching in church and being threatened to throw off a cliff, thrown off a cliff. But we know that Jesus' ministry would have a global impact. And we also know that not everyone would like it. Friends, there are always going to be dividing lines when it comes to Jesus. 
And I think one great application we can take home with us today is this. You are either with him or you are opposed to him. Are you from Nazareth? Familiar with Jesus, yet opposed to him? Or you've been born again to a new kingdom, thankful that this prophecy of Isaiah has in fact been fulfilled. Friend, I pray that it is indeed that latter. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for truth. We thank you for the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ and for the hope that he brings sinners. Father, we live in a day that continues to embody the reality of brokenness and poverty. and All, all forms of brokenness, Father. We just imagine, oftentimes as we think about the world in which we live, we just... We, we often see no hope, no, no brightness, and yet we have every reason to hope because of Jesus. Father, we thank you for sending your son to this world to be the hope of the nations. Lord, even in the face of rejection, Jesus continued on. Lord, even being rejected by those closest to him, those who knew him best. Father, we thank you for his faithfulness to continue on ultimately to the point of death to bear our burden and shame. Father, would you remind us of these wonderful truths this morning and would you <coughs> confront us even in our sin? Maybe we've grown complacent. Maybe we find ourselves too familiar with Jesus that we don't truly see him for all the glorious reality that he is. Father, forgive us. Would you open blind eyes and would you set captives free because of what Jesus has accomplished? Father, we ask because we know that you freely give grace. Would you give it this day? And for those of us who know it, would you help us to continue to walk in joy in it, we pray in Christ's name, amen.